we're simply nowhere uh, in terms of a conversation about, well, how would you use these assets? What alternatives might you pursue? How then might they stack up in terms of cost against the basic gas-based replacement? Say nothing of the question of whether proceeding with the Darlington and Bruce refurbishments are our most cost-effective options because they're going to drive rates through the roof. Um, we're talking over 16 cents a kilowatt hour for the Darlington refurbishment. I mean, the rate picture is going to get uglier, not better on that pathway. Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop, and on this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Mark Winfield, a professor in the Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change at York University and co-chair of the Faculty Sustainable Energy Initiative. Welcome to the interview, Mark. Thank you. Now, earlier this week, I interviewed you about the controversy surrounding Toronto City Council's motion supporting the phase-out of natural gas for generating electricity in Ontario. That discussion convinced me that you and I needed to have a longer interview about the provincial electricity system and some of the choices that need to be made going forward. And only a few months ago in December, the Ontario Independent Electricity System Operator released its 2020 plan. So there we have a bit of, uh, 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 well, a strategy that we can, we can respond to. So the way I would like to structure our conversation today is to start at a very high level with global trends. And the two that I want to flag today are the energy transition. So we're transitioning from fossil fuels to low carbon electricity or low carbon uh, biofuels or fuels like hydrogen. And secondly, climate change, which then leads us to climate policy. And it fundamentally, we're changing how we produce, distribute and consume electricity. It's all driven by new technologies, changing customer preferences and policy. We've got things like distributed energy resources, solar, wind and batteries, We've got commercial and industrial consumers that can now self-generate. It's a fundamental transformation of how we uh, use energy on a global scale. So that's the first thing. So how, what's your take on that as with respect to Ontario's role in it, in the energy transition and climate policy? Well, it's, it's a complex uh, territory and in, and in some ways, um, in the short term, Ontario has, has kind of walked away from these conversations, uh, certainly on the climate side. I mean, we have no effective climate strategy for the province, either on the mitigation or adaptation side. Indeed, the province's environmental commissioner has been very clear about that and very clear in, in uh, his criticism about that. Um, and indeed, much in some way, the same could be said on the electricity side, that, that we know um, that there's a series of technological revolutions occurring in the electricity sector. Uh, some people have argued biggest technological revolution since Thomas Edison figured out how to make distribution grids work. Uh, the combination of, of the falling cost, improving performance of, of renewables, uh, the coming together of, of a number of streams around storage, and then what's broadly referred to as smart grids or digitalization of management and control systems, you know, mean that, that all kinds of possibilities that were sort of theorized 
in the 70s and 80s now are looking very, very technologically feasible. Um, and we know other jurisdictions are, are moving on those, those technologies and thinking about how do we, not just thinking about how to integrate them into their systems, but are actually doing it. And at the moment, um, Ontario, again, is in the situation of, of being somewhat sidelined in, in that conversation. Uh, there are lots of people doing work below the surface around it, uh, both the private sector, distribution utilities, others, um, but very little space in terms of the, the operational electricity system for, for those sorts of technologies to actually get deployed any kind of commercial scale. Yeah, I wanted to make the point that I read the system operator's plan, and it struck me uh, that it is uh, pretty much a cautious, conservative kind of, of uh, a demand plan. And it's Ontario is no California. Ontario isn't even in Texas, for that matter. And it strike and, and I can understand the system operators conundrum here because really it, it's op almost operating in a policy vacuum. And so it then is required to say, all right, uh, we have to take the policy as it stands today, which is you know, on the climate and energy side is fairly weak. And then we have to extrapolate out and we have to forecast for 20 years. Uh, and that's the best we can do. That's our job is to plan for the policy as we have it now. And uh, that really puts, as far as I can see, puts Ontario uh, behind the eight ball. Um, indeed, I've, I've described our situation as something of an innovation wasteland. Um, that, that, but you're, you're quite right. I mean, the, the IESO is, is operating in a vacuum. It has no clear direction either on electricity or climate policy from the province. And so, yes, all, all it can really do is sort of manage in the short term some of the same thing. It has no the the mandates around energy efficiency around which we were doing very well again, uh, virtually non-existent. Um, so it's it's working with the landscape that it's got and sort of responding, sort of as it has to. Um, but there's there's no vision at all here. Uh, there's no sense of where some of the new technological opportunities fit into the picture. Uh, there's no sense of where does the climate change conversation fit into the picture. Um, it, it's essentially kind of continuing on inertia uh, where we were left with these decisions from the previous government uh, to refurbish the Bruce and Darlington nuclear facilities. And that, that in many ways defines the entire landscape. And you sort of see that in, in the IESO report. So that means the system is, is sort of committed to being roughly 50% nuclear, if not more. Um, and that, among other things, leaves relatively little room uh, in terms of what do you do next. Yeah, we'll get to that in, in the, the generation mix uh, in just a moment. Uh, there are lots of examples in that planning document about how Ontario is behind and, and how the IESO is fairly cautious and conservative. And, but let me give you one, uh, and that's the electrification of transportation. So there are approximately 9 million cars in, uh, in Ontario now. I didn't check the numbers for commercial vehicles, but I'm sure it's well up in, in the millions. Uh, and the growth in electric vehicles as forecast by the uh, 
system operator's plan is to only have uh, 700,000 electric vehicles by 2030 and only 1.8 by 2040. Those are way, way below the forecast for groups like Bloomberg New Energy Finance, where you know by 2040, you're looking at, at penetration rates of 40 or 50%. And so, you know, then we get into the electrification of buildings and we get into the electrification of industry. None of that appears in these plans. And yet those are the trends that we see uh, at the federal level. That's the policy direction at the federal level. And we see that as the trend within, within the various industries. So <laughs> it, it just, it seems like, uh, you know, there's going to be, uh, Ontario is going to be caught short if it continues with this plan. That's my take on it. Well, I it caught short in, in different ways. I mean, the problem, again, from, from the IESO's perspective at this stage is, is there is no mandate around EVs, for example. Uh, such policies as existed around them previously are gone. Um, so they've, they've got nothing from the province to work with in terms of where we're going. Uh, the same thing around buildings is there is absolutely no direction whatsoever from the province in terms of uh, you know, where, where do we go with space heating, especially for example, which is, which is a very, very large source of greenhouse gas emissions. We, we use natural gas for space heating. Um, or or where, what sort of conversation we would then have around that because the, the question of the space heating conversation is actually very, is a very complicated one in our climate. Um, but there's, there's, that conversation isn't happening any, some, anywhere. Some NGOs have tried to get that going. And some of us in the academic community are trying as well, but it, it's without any engagement from the province about what, where we're going. So there's this sort of risks of being left behind technologically. Um, there's risks in, in all kinds of different directions in terms of, well, where would, where would grid electricity demand go? And again, yes, these things could translate into significant growth in grid demand, um, but how much is a function of many different factors, including how much DER activity do you get happening at the local level? And we know some of the distribution utilities in the province are very engaged around that and very anxious to move on that. Um, we know there's, there's a large potential on the demand side as well, which we've effectively abandoned uh, the ISO's projections, which again come from the province on the demand side, you know, in terms of what can be achieved. Again, are very, very conservative, very, very modest, uh, even compared to what the province was already achieving before 2018. So we've, we've got this, this vacuum is, is the best way to describe it with, with a series of these variables that could affect it. Um, but no forum and no structure in which to have that conversation. I mean, the IESO's mandate is to look 18 months out. Um, and this requires thinking through a series of scenarios and possibilities that goes out a lot further than that. Now, I've had the opportunity to interview a number of American experts about the changes that are happening in American jurisdictions. So not just California, but the Pacific Northwest, and, uh, and Texas and some of the southern states. And one of the, the themes that comes through loud and clear is the importance of, of policy and regulatory uh, reform. That is, uh, it, you cannot leave this 
uh, kind of change up to just the market. In fact, the folks that are in the market, the utilities and, and the consumers, uh, are also insisting and, and making the point that uh, the regulatory framework uh, is, is absolutely vital going forward. And it seems like, as I've read the, the Ford government's climate plan, there's the you know, vague allusions to innovation and new technologies and something's gonna come down the road and, you know, and make everything all better. But the, the very uh, framework that the market needs a market-oriented government is ignoring. Well, yeah, there is there is no framework. Is is the polite way to put it? I mean, there is there is no planning framework at all of any sort. Um, the province is engaged now in a consultation on what that framework should look like, uh, but there's there's no real direction from the province. It's not market oriented particularly. The only driver is is that they would very much like to keep hydro rates down. And uh, but you know we're already engaged in a massive subsidization of hydro rates uh, through general revenues uh, to the tune of over seven billion dollars a year, which is simply not sustainable. And that's more than the province's pre-COVID deficit, um, or approaching most of it. Sorry, it was a little less than it, but very pretty pretty much there. Um, so we, we have a blank in terms of, of what this system looks like. Is there going to be a planning framework? Is it going to be a market-oriented system? Is it going to be some kind of hybrid? I would guess the latter, um, that, that we tried the full-on market model in the late 90s and early 2000s and found, as many other people did, that that failed uh, catastrophically for, for a variety of reasons. Um, so one would expect you might see some sort of competitive environment around procurement, um, but you know, that's unlikely to happen through the wholesale market because the problem there is that that market in Ontario is dominated by must-run assets, uh, principally nuclear and then to a lesser extent hydroelectric, uh, which, which leaves very little room for anything else. Um, in the wholesale, in sort of the day-to-day, -day, you know, sort of five-minute ahead wholesale markets. So probably for new supply, you're going to see some kind of procurement structures. Um, but what those are, we don't know. The province at one point played with the idea of a capacity market. And I think there was a realization that that would probably be completely dominated by gas assets and that that wasn't necessarily entirely desirable, either from a climate perspective, but from an innovation perspective either. I mean, the situation we have is that the, uh, the gas generation that was constructed over the last decade was done on a capacity basis. Its capital costs are retired, so it would have enormous advantages in a, in a cap, as it comes off contract, it would have enormous advantages in a capacity market kind of scenario. Well, let's talk about the power generation mix in Ontario. So. Uh, the numbers that I've got here are for capacity, not actual generation. And that would be uh, nuclear at 28%, but nuclear provides 60% of Ontario's electricity. Uh, hydroelectric the capacity is 23%, but it provides about 26% of electricity. Gas is, the capacity is 26%, but it only provides around 7% of electricity, maybe even a little bit less depending on the year. And so you've got all this spare capacity on, on the gas side, 
And then you've got wind at 14% and solar at 7%. And the actual, uh, their percentages of the actual power produced are, are much smaller than that. So if I'm, if I'm the uh, system operator and I'm looking at uh, Pickering going off, uh, the nu Pickering nuclear, nuclear plant going uh, offline, being retired in a few years, and also uh, refurbishment to the uh, to other nuclear plants. So I'm going to lose a lot of generating capacity in the 2020s. And I'm looking at my uh, my uh, generation mix. Uh, keeping gas in there is actually is is the most uh, it's the safest and probably the cheapest uh, option. But on the other hand, it comes with with rising uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And in the system operator's letter to the Toronto City Council, it made that very clear that it, that it's it doesn't really care much about rising emissions. It really cares about reliability and cost. So what's your take on that? Well, again, the the ISO has no mandate from the province in terms of what it's supposed to do on climate. Um, so that's not a surprising answer, and it's been their answer really since um, this conversation began a decade ago about what would happen as Pickering reached end of life. And indeed, it's, it's past end of life. It really should have closed in 2018. Um, and, and as Darlington and Bruce came offline for refurbishment, um, that gas fleet has been there. And the operator's assumption is we, we run the gas fleet flat out. Um, from an environmental climate perspective, this is very unattractive. Um, what we haven't had anywhere is a conversation about, in a formal sense, about what the alternatives might be. Uh, Monsieur Legault, the Premier of Quebec, has been quite aggressive in, in his approaches to Mr. Ford, saying we, we have a surplus, uh, which we would love to share with you. And indeed, the interties are being reinforced anyway. Um, that window may now start to close as Quebec enters into relationships with the New York and, and New England. Uh, but the offer has been on the table, but the province has done little to take it up. Um, renewables development is at a complete standstill. Um, uh, and very little happening on storage or other integration. And the DER people have you know a million interesting ideas, but nowhere to go with them. And as I said, too, the conservation piece is at a dead end. But we, the real problem, again, is there has been nowhere um, to have a conversation about, well, what should we do? Do we just run these gas plants flat out? And as we discussed last time, I mean, they've been very lightly used. Um, they got lots of miles left in them. There's no question about that. And the capital costs are, are as they come off contract, will be retired. Uh, yes, from an economic perspective and an operational perspective, they're very, very attractive. Uh, but is that the best option in the long term if we're worried about greenhouse gases or smog? Um, there are lots of people saying no, but again, there's, there's nowhere for this conversation to happen. Yeah, it, and it's interesting because we're at a time where wind and solar are now the cheapest way to generate electricity. So, for instance, we saw in BC, BC Hydro uh, is going ahead with the Site C dam, and uh, the BC government was just forced to make a decision here not long ago. And it looks like, according to the economists that I've interviewed, that power there is going to be in the 120 to $140 uh, dollar a megawatt hour. I mean, that's 
you know, 12 to 14 cents a kilowatt hour, that's very, very expensive power. Whereas Alberta recently in 2018 contracted for wind at 3.7 cents, $37 a, a megawatt hour. So, and Ontario is in a, a very unique position. Okay, so fine, we know that the, maybe the wind contracts, you know, from 10, 12 years ago were not handled very well, fair enough. But that doesn't mean that they have to be handled poorly going forward. And the and Ontario has, you know, with all of that hydroelectric uh, capacity, which essentially can act as a battery for intermittent renewables. So in some ways, Ontario seems really well poised to integrate uh, renewables. Oh, and we should mention also the, the uh, Oneida uh, 250 megawatt uh, battery storage project that's uh, just going to be either online or becoming online soon. So there are all these, you know, the uh, opportunities that Ontario has to talk about integrating more, uh, you know, lower no carbon renewables. And you're saying that they're not even discussing it. No, uh, I mean, the, the government has an allergy to renewables. Um, I mean, it literally spent hundreds of millions of dollars canceling completed or partially completed and, and literally tearing down uh, wind projects. Um, and so it simply refuses to go there, even though there's all kinds of potential and indeed you add to your list, um, you know, if we have an, an expanding EV fleet that's grid connected, that again could be used as a balancing asset. Uh, say the, 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 our hydro resources are not ideal for this because they are mostly run of river. We have actually relatively little actual storage. It's, quite different from Quebec, where they actually have large scale behind the dam storage capacity. Hydro-Quebec likes to tell us a year, at least, uh, behind the dams in Quebec. So they, they are the ideal balancing partner. Um, but yeah, we're, we're certainly not at the limit in terms of economically viable renewable development. As I say, there's a whole pack cluster of activity around distributed resources storage, which is which wants to move forward. You know, we had considerable capacity on the efficiency side, which we've, we've very broad consensus is our most cost effective option. And again, because very important in terms of things like demand response, again, if you're going to manage intermittency. And, but um, again, we're, we're, we're simply nowhere uh, in terms of a conversation about, well, how would you use these assets? What alternatives might you pursue? How then might they stack up in terms of cost against the basic gas-based replacement? Say nothing of the question of whether proceeding with the Darlington and Bruce refurbishments are our most cost-effective options because they're going to drive rates through the roof. Um, we're talking over 16 cents a kilowatt hour for the Darlington refurbishment. I mean, the rate picture is going to get uglier, not better on that pathway. Well, let's wrap up this conversation, Mark, with an observation that I often make, uh, which is uh, Tony Seba's uh, uh, work. So the, the Stanford economist and, and Rethink X founder has recently published a study in which he argues that the cost of wind, solar, and batteries are going to be so low by 2030, the marginal cost of electricity, a unit of electricity will essentially be zero. And then once clean, abundant, cheap electricity is available like that, that then transforms your economy, your society, how you do, you know, how we, how we live and how we work and in the, the industry changes fundamentally in the same way that cheap petroleum and the internal combustion engine changed things in the 1920s. Now, 
Siba might be wrong, or he might be, you know, way out on, on a limb here. But I, but I guess the point is that if Ontario doesn't reform and fix its electricity system, that it could have serious economic development issues or economic consequences uh, down the road. 2030 to 2040 could be really ugly uh, because some of these uh, chickens are going to come home to roost. Yeah, I think, as I've said before, we've, we've taken ourselves out of these conversations. Um, and the downstream consequences could be very, very significant in terms of, of where these systems go. We're, we're effectively, because we've defaulted, we're effectively defending incumbents at the moment, and who so are very expensive incumbents too, principally the nuclear folks, but you could argue the gas people in a sense are as well. Um, and we're not looking forward, and that does run the risk that, that we get left behind as the technological forces sort of move forward on their own, as you're as he was describing, um, that his costs continue to fall and say, we're gonna have, uh, I mean, batteries are not cheap, but we're gonna have large fleets, both of operating, but also end of life EVs, which means large supplies of secondary batteries coming into the market as well. Um, this could change the dynamics profoundly. And we seem, other than a little bit of nibbling by the Ontario Energy Board and a little bit of nibbling by the IESO at the edges, um, we seem completely unprepared for any of this. Um, we've locked ourselves into a path, and, and I agree, it's entirely possible we're going to discover that it's the wrong path uh, and that the world has passed us by. Well, this is cold comfort, Mark, but I would, uh, based on the work that I've done in Western Canada, for instance, uh, Ontario was not alone. The, unfortunately, there are other provinces like Alberta that are pretty much in some ways, just as on Saskatchewan would be another example, also unprepared. But I think that you've hit the nail on the head by saying we need to have the conversation first. If you can't have the conversation, you can't change policy, you can't change direction. And uh, hopefully uh, this podcast will play its mod a modest part in kickstarting that conversation. So thank you very much for this. Well, thank you very much for having me. This was a very interesting conversation. Thank you.